0: being
1: Hi everybody, welcome to the second edition of Nervous State. Since we left last back in June, we've moved from the determined depression of the lockdown to the anxiety of its easing. Pubs are staying closed, schools will be opening up, we hope. We have a new government and civil war politics is over, or maybe they're just having a truce. Things are a bit mad at the moment, or maybe it's just the madness is more readily apparent. Anyway, here's our attempt to make sense of some of what's going on. In this show, we have word on the street from the Dublin Enquirer. We talk with punk poet Jinx Lennon about his new album, Border Schizo Folk Songs for the Fucked. We catch up with some of the workers from Debenhams who have been on strike since April. We spoke with representatives from two organizations which are trying to improve the standard of living for people with intellectual disabilities in Ireland. We interrogated the Department of Education's response to the pandemic and their plan to open schools at the end of August. And we hear about a new music compilation, Litany of Failures number three, We're Nervous State. We hope you enjoy the show. And if you can support Dublin Digital Radio on their Patreon, please do so at patreon.com. Every episode, we dip into local stories affecting Dublin City with the help of a member of the Dublin Inquirer team. They chat to us about their stories of the month. This month, Katrina Devery caught up with Leisha Neyland.
2: So hi, Leisha, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us here on DDR. We're just going to chat to you about some of the the recent pieces you wrote for Dublin Inquirer in the last month.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: We're going to talk about two stories that you've, you've written about the Dublin City Council and the their kind of management of the social housing lists. Um, and then one other story about pocket forests, mini forests in the city. That sounds interesting. So tell us, we'll start first with the with the, the housing lists and, and some things, some interesting things you found out after Freedom of Information Inquiry.
3: Yeah, I did a Freedom of Information request to find out what was the longest that somebody had been on the list. And it turned out that there were 20 households that had been on the list for 20 years or more. Um, Now, Dublin City Council said that all of those had had offers, but there were a couple of hundred people who were on it over 15 years and had never had an offer. Hmm. Um, So it's getting a lot longer. The average waiting time was 12 years, um, and that's definitely increasing as well. Um, so, so yeah, so, so some really long waits, the woman that I spoke to her kids are reared and it's only now she's starting to get offers, you know, and she, she joined the list when her children were young. And she's, and how,
2: long is she, how long has she been on the list? This is Claire McLachlan. She says she's
3: on the list 21 years. Um,
4: yes.
3: so like there, but again, it's, it's very complicated because sometimes people um, also think they're on the list but actually they're not. They joined the list 20 years ago, but somewhere along the line, they've been removed.
2: What's the process to, to, to kind of update those lists or
3: keep them? Yeah, keep the this kind of going. brings us into the, to the other story, which was what, I, what actually happened when I was doing the research, was that one of the counsellors, um, uh, independent councillor Nolene Riley in Ballymon had said to me, "Look, you know, all these people think they're on the list 20 years. She's like, but they've been removed. A lot of them have been removed. the basis for that is that the council would write out every two or three years they carry out an assessment to see that you're still entitled to social housing you to want social housing or whatever which is fine but if you for any reason don't get that letter or you don't see the letter you miss the letter you can be removed from the housing list. Um, and the department of housing is now instructing the councils to send that letter out every year instead of every two or three years now doesn't city council say they now write out to people three times and i think there's been a lot of um you know, a lot of councillors have been advocating around it in Dublin City Council. And Noli Riley said that she advocated for around 200 people, a couple of hundred people, and she only succeeded in getting one person three years back on the list. So it's quite strict. Once you're gone, you're gone.
2: We, we Go back to Claire McLaughlin yeah, and tell us a little bit about her story.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So she, um, she joined the list when her, son, her eldest son was young and her eldest son has now left the house. It's only in the last couple of years that she's started to get offers and um, at one stage she she was also actually removed from the list at one stage but in different circumstances because she had moved into house with a friend who was also a single mom and they were sharing the two families and then the mom moved the other mom moved out and then Claire and her kids had an extra bedroom and at that and I've never heard this before but she said at that stage she was actually removed from the list for having an excess bedroom in the private rental uh, some kind
2: of assessment was made, and they decided like you have an extra, you have an excess room, so you don't. Yeah,
3: yeah. I've never heard of it before. It was a good few years ago. She says that Féin T D Angus study successfully advocated to get her those years back, and she was she she was back on the list, but she was moving around in loads of different private rentals, you know. And what she was saying was like, which a lot of people say. I think it's like, how does the system actually work? Because yeah. everyone's saying like, oh, you need to go to the council every day, go in, ring up you know make a big song and dance but if it's a waiting list then why do you have to make a song and dance
2: if there's this point in this kind of scheme of lettings and the different bands and it's needs based then she she was seemed to be saying that yeah you need to almost be demonstrating like verb, like really loudly demonstrating that your you really want. Yeah. But yeah, you're des- performing your desperation in some way but I mean what, what, did, what sense did you get from from talking to the counsellors
3: yeah, like, really, it's so, it's so mixed. And at the end of the day, I just, I just can't say whether it's, it's right or wrong. Um, there has been, and I think everybody knows that, there has been allegations of corruption in social housing, it's not just in Dublin, in every county in Ireland. It's the way it was done in the past was, yeah. you know, alleged, we'll say, to have been that you go to a local politician and... They have
2: influence or... or... They have
3: influence and they, they can get you housed, um, and I mean that system is absolutely detrimental because the most vulnerable people will not know to do that. So, but I think that, that it's a common case that that was the case in the past. Into the current day, it's really hard to say, like, we do hear allegations of corruption. The cancer's mostly were saying they don't think there is any corruption now because they think everything has been watched so closely that you kind of couldn't get away with that. Um, Maybe a
2: sense was there a sense that the, the sort of the, the the assessment is quite is so complex or can be quite complex that that in itself lends itself to allegations of queue jumping because people do yeah. sometimes get moved up or
3: yeah absolutely people just don't understand the the system is so complex it's changed from the way that it used to be done the old points based system I think people kind of knew it better even though this system is in now like a lot of years there's a lot of confusion around it. It's done by different bands. And that was one of the things we wanted to do in the article was to try and break down what the system actually is and how it's supposed to work. So the bands are, you know, if you're in band A, that's priority. That's quite hard to get into, you know, and people get confused about that as well. They're like, well, my, my child has an illness. You know, shouldn't I have medical priority? But it's not. It's, if your child has an illness and that's been affected by your current housing situation, mm-hmm. then you would have medical priority. Other people that get priority are travelers. Homeless people did get priority. They don't get it anymore. So, When, homeless-
2: did, that ch- when did that change, the, home- the removal of the homeless from? Yeah, that home- happened
3: in, in 2018. And so anybody who had homeless priority, prior to change coming in in April 2018, would still be in that band-aid. But newly homeless people coming onto the system, they don't get priority anymore. It's, it's a very complicated issue. One of the things being that there's a lot of families living in severe situations of overcrowding and their conditions are not much better than families in hotels or arguably potentially even worse. And those people were not being reached. So it was explained to me that it would be fairer on those, that cohort if the homeless priority was removed. So it's very complicated. I mean, removing homeless priority, then obviously the downside of that is that if people can become homeless again for a second time, and that happens as well. That happens a lot.
2: The other person that you spoke to was Sarah Stevens, and I think she she ended up having to move around quite a lot because of her. She had been taken off the list. Was that that was?
3: Yeah, she she was one of these people that had been removed from the list, I mean that was really quite a shocking story. Quite
2: difficult circumstances.
3: Yeah, it was really bad. And um, you know, she'd come from the care system. She'd been raised in care in Wicklow, she'd originally been from Delary but raised in foster care in Wicklow. Mm. Um, she had m- become pregnant quite young and managed to get a private rented property in Wicklow, um, but she wanted to, she, she was allowed at the time to go on the Dublin City Council housing list because that's where her sister was living. She's a sister living in Dublin City Centre, so she joined the Dublin City Council housing list in 2007. She stayed living in, in private rented accommodation in Wicklow. And in 2013, then she had a stillbirth. She struggled with her mental health around that time. When, when in 2014, she rang up Dublin City Council. She found that she'd been removed from the housing list.
2: And she had and no... She, had, she, she said that they apparently said they sent her a letter, but obviously she was not... Yeah,
3: they had her right address. She was, she was in the one property at the time. She had to move around the lot. in. Mm. The housing thing has gotten harder, but at that time she had been in one property for years and they did have the correct address. She says she honestly doesn't know, like she doesn't think she got a letter from them. She doesn't remember getting a letter from them, but she was having a really hard time. So she just isn't certain. And um, she was told at the time, there's no point appealing that you won't get anywhere. And she said like she would have, she didn't know how to advocate for herself, but she would have she shoved her hand in the fire if she thought she'd get a house that. You
2: wouldn't think that the consequences would be so no. uh, definitive or brutal or you know
3: very... No, I don't really see why they can't just suspend the application, to be honest. I, I, I don't understand why... You're yeah, it has to be
2: a back-to-the-bottom-of-the-list your... back kind of... No, I
3: don't understand why you're losing all the years. I don't think the this needs to work in that way. Like, I think a lot of counsellors have been trying to raise awareness around this, mm. make sure their constituents know how important it is to return that form because you wouldn't really take it.
2: The last article we'll talk about is... Um, a piece that you did, where you interviewed Catherine Cleary and Ash Conrad Jones about a, a tree planting project, but a sort of an unusual one in that it's, it's mini forest, pocket forest, it's called. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that.
3: Yeah. So they were out in their kind of turquoise green jumpsuits when I arrived up to the front garden and um, potting little baby trees. Um, they have their two friends um, who have set up this. Kind of social enterprise and the idea is that somebody with a garden and like i thought when, when they said that you know you'd have to have a massive garden to plant a little miniature native forest in it but no you don't you can do it in a very small garden
2: she um, said a space the size of a, a car parking space yeah ash, I think it would actually be sufficient
3: yeah ash had a rope and she threw it out into the into a size around the size of a car parking space and they said that in there they can get five native trees five bushes and you know five other little plants like wild garlic or whatever so it's a really it's a really miniature version of a native irish woodland yeah yeah um and if if you pay them to plant that in your garden they will use that money then to do public spaces
2: so it's about na- it's kind of about native trees as well as just being about tree Absolutely. planting which is great also, in general they also want to what well, they also want to really big up the the native it's native woodland. All
3: native plants and trees. That's Point of it because that's to do with biodiversity. Obviously, then it brings in more insects, birds, and much more species can live on the native um, plants and trees than can live on the um, on non-native trees. Although non-native trees are obviously great for oxygen and all that stuff and reducing carbon dioxide, but the native trees are better for biodiversity. So, and I mean, I know Dublin City Council are moving towards this and they're letting some some little bits of the parks go wild and things like that. And it's so important um, for biodiversity to have those wild spaces. And this is a bit like that. And they, you know, they're saying that you just have to prune the trees every couple of years to keep them inside your part of the garden because so they're not extending over into your neighbour or whatever. Yeah, because um, they're doing
2: both private spaces, I think, and sort of like they, they could do public spaces as well. So it's yeah. it's really what it's, it's whatever little piece of space you have, you can you could have a little mini forest.
3: Exactly, exactly. And they're hoping to work with Dublin City Council and um, get access to some public spaces you know larger ones they could do the size of they have another you know the other idea is for something about the size of a tennis court that would be the public space one so then they would even have little paths going through that so it would really be like a little mini forest
2: yeah it's a lovely idea really and like the benefits of trees and greenery in cities is just there's so many like from biodiversity air quality but also just general health well-being and
3: psychological well-being yeah absolutely
1: so thanks for that katrina and leisha the reality music of jinx lennon shows us how we can engage with everyday life and not get dragged down uh my name is martin lean and i had a call with jinx to talk about scratch cards football fans north county loud and the manhole covers of dundalk town
5: they know your, your shape and your drunken drunk state as you stagger through the, the town. There's You're the scarred ships and the seam of your piss, the, the manhole covers of Dundalk Town.
1: So I'm here with Jinx Lennon. Uh, he's got a new album out. It's called Border Schizo Folk Songs for the Fucked. Um, it's available on Bandcamp. Um, Jinx, so could you maybe tell us a little bit what the songs are all about?
0: So a lot of the songs would be. They'd be talking about universal themes, but. The locality would would be very much in, in my mind for most of the songs. It's just basically talking about what you know about, instead of what you want to talk about. Instead of you, what you wanted to be just being, and looking around you and singing about that, and um, that that's what that's what the album's about. So it's it's basically just just talented as it is really more more talent as it is, Don't but worry. doing it as a sort of a concept album this time.
1: Okay, cool. So like you you, you 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 do deal a lot like through. A, all of your work in kind of local stories and local issues, but like yeah. you really deal with the local being the universal too.
4: Yeah. And,
0: and it's something that, 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 that uh, it's, it's sort of like a light, a light and bold. It's, it's something I feel it's, it's not something that I'm trying to do. It's, it's just something that, that, sort of magnetizes me to, to sing about, you know, yeah. um, that that's always been, because it feels right to do it. Cool, And that's why I'm still doing it. It just feels right to do it. And every album's like, it's almost like I'm singing about the, I'm, I'm singing the same albums, but I'm getting I'm coming in for another swoop at it and to hone it down even more. because yeah. a lot of the subjects I'd sing about, it, but it's just to hone it down. Things I wouldn't have said before, I wouldn't have had the language to, I wouldn't have the guts to sing about them, and and, and I'm back again just to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a painting, and you're just refining it, and you can see just a little bit more detail this time.
1: There's there seems to be lots of kind of interesting stories for you to be telling, any from that part of the world, like uh, cops and coke, B and B landladies, football fans, pyromaniacs.
0: Yeah, the same stuff everywhere. But just what what I see around, maybe just give a different slant
1: on yeah.
0: my part of the country. You
1: know, there's a great song on the album. It's called "The Manhole Covers of Dundalk Town." It's kind of an ode. To Dundalk,
0: yeah, it's it's almost you know the the manhole covers. You you're walking past them and you sort of looking as if to as if they were alive and looking at all the people walking over through the years, and observing everything that's going on, all the fights, all the breakups, all the the, the Friday night fights, all the bullshit that solicitors walking across the town with their phones, screwing everybody and all sorts of the, just the, the the walk of life of people moving through the town at any any given time of the day.
5: They felt you as you went with your mother for clothes With the war in a rosy glow When you skipped to the picture house with your dad Before teenage years came and you hated him so bad They felt you as you staggered along the quay As you shouted at your girlfriend Who hit you with a handbag on New Year's Eve They felt the projectiles of your phlegm They, they know your shape, shape and your drunken state I just staggered you the town. town. Your, your pizza, pizza crust and your, and your cigarette butt. butts. The man the covers of Thundertown. They you change your check off down in Sea Town. Then you'd piss it all back down. Well, fair-faced barmaids treated you like royalty. But in the chip shop windows later, you look like E.T. They you felt your blood when you were bed up. And you went home with two black guys. If it wasn't for Bugsy Brannigan who jumped on in Your head would have swollen to twice the size You stagger on home and you are caught short There's a river on Mary Street, North If the man on covers could talk, they would probably say What are you like now, you've pissed it all away They know know your your shape and your your drunken state And And you stagger through through the the town. town You're the star chips and, and the steam of your piss. The, the manhole covers of Dundalk, Dundalk Town. They to know your, your shape and your drunken state. state. And, and the stagger through the town. Your pizza crust and your cigarette, and your cigarette butts. The manhole hold covers of Dundalk, of Dundalk,
1: Dundalk town. town. So that was, the, that was the manhole covers of Dundalk Town. They're kind of an ode to Dundalk from Jenks. Uh, a great song, Jenks. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I'm sort of putting myself in there because I'm, I'm, am I'm, I'm just talking about. Uh, I'm bringing the whole family. and bringing the, the mother and father into it as well, and, and things that happen and exes, ex girlfriends, and stuff, and drunken nights and, um, you know, heading home and, and you're caught short, and there's a river suddenly appearing all over the street. This sort of thing. Yeah.
1: So, like, I find like with a with a with a, a lot of your albums and a lot of your songs, generally, like there's a. There's a lot of darkness in the songs, but there's also like it's also balanced out with a kind of lot of light. Like, how do you how, how do you achieve that, that that balance? Because you seem to be getting that balance more and more as your albums, uh, the more albums that you make. Yeah. Um, it's 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 something that uh,
0: I'm just probably getting to be a better songwriter now because I'm, I'm able to there's a, there's a fine antenna for, for writing the songs now. And there's more of a sort of a quality control, if you like. Because I'm writing that many songs that there's basically, there's always something on the go. And I may there's four or five songs going one time, and and, and I might bring one of those out and maybe cannibalise the rest to make one great song rather than have a a whole heap of songs. The trouble I have basically playing live is that people go me and see me live. I'm playing songs that are not really ready to go, but I just want to keep everything current to my detriment people might say, well, your man's not that good. He was, the songs are a bit of mediocre. But I would have better songs, but I'm still, it's almost like being in the lab and seeing what's working and doing it live. I, I just, I'm really attracted to that. Yeah. I
6: sort of
0: give the bear to give the bear all to the detriment of yourself that you, you might be too vulnerable, if you like, people seeing you in the vulnerable state, maybe singing a song that's only half ready. But I'm i am sort of attracted to that, to see what exactly? Where the journey? Where the journey is going? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the journey. I, like there was plenty of times I wanted to give it up, and I was going to myself. Well, if you give it up, you won't see where the journey ends. It's almost like, a, it's like Irish mythology. It's like Finn McCool. You want to You want to see where he's going. You know, he, he came through the, the bad times and the darkness and and, and the, you know like being, being thrown out of heaven or hell and then sort of reclaiming and coming back again. So that's what that that's what attracts me. I want to see where the story the story's going. I want to see what it's like when I'm seventy. Um, I want to see what's like in my deathbed. Am I still writing songs before that, you know? So it's a it's a life journey and it's uh it, it's re- it's really sort of I, I, I find it really uh, holistic, you know, the whole the whole music uh writing thing. It's 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 more than the industry. It's part of life, it's part of my life. Yeah.
1: And like you really have like a very uplifting message in a lot of your songs. Like your, your, yeah. your, your music is, are you trying to uplift people with your... I
5: do, yeah, about? because it, it,
0: it's like Leo Reed said, because it, he, he's a big influence on me, he's like, people should not feel they're alone. And the songs are for people who feel alone. The show's like for people who feel alone in that there are plenty of times there would be in the audience looking up on the stage and thinking, this man's giving me absolutely nothing. I'm got home now and I'm felt pissed off with life. But if I go and see somebody that's actually trying to give you something, even if they're not a great musician, if they're trying to give you something, it's making it so you're feeling that there is actually somebody out there who's is is willing to make themselves vulnerable so that just to, to bring themselves up and to bring you up maybe if you're into it, you know. Yeah. Cool. If you're if you're if you're open to that, if you're open to being sort of uplifted, that the show is will uplift you. Because it's aimed for that, because it is vulnerable, it is talking about It is talking about the shit that that people need to talk about. And don't talk about it that much. Like You can dress it up and make it as nice as possible, as trendy as possible, as hipster as possible, and all the rest. I'm not interested in that bullshit anymore. I just want to have a show that's uplifting. The way you're going to see James Brown or Al Green or any of these guys, these guys are putting it all into it because they've, they've been up against it. They know what they're talking about. Yeah, I can do it on any other band. You know, that's that, That's why I like stuff like like even rap music because there's there's so many words flowing the whole time that you're about to just hone into something that's that, that's going to be better than going to see a four piece band whose words are going really slowly. Whereas the, the guy that's rapping is you know he's, he's spitting out sparks.
1: Right. So on that note, we'll play another song off the album called "Be Proud."
5: Be proud of your old town. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of your mistakes. The of that lies in your face, the stage in your brain, the to remains to you is no disgrace, I have to start a fight and say Good God almighty, I'm proud of myself right now Good God, be proud, be proud of your hometown Be proud does not mean, waddling with the penguin people from side to side Football match pride don't so good if you don't feel it inside. Be proud of your big, thick country accent. It's addition, not a subtraction. You're an anchor in this land. Not a few salt grains in the frying pan. The TV voice that floats through the cosmos. That can fit in anywhere. But no longer here nor there. Asher, let them lose their souls. Why should you have to care? Ah, be proud of your hometown. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of your mistakes with knife your face, the stains your brain the remain to you are no disgrace. I had to stand up a fight and say, Good God Almighty, I'm proud of myself right now. Good God, be proud. Be proud of your hometown. Yeah. Seven nights in cough. 20, I threw it off. And 15, my old man said to me, if you don't get your leave with search, you can walk in a factory. Came through like a prophecy. Didn't the electronics course. Home's love, things go worse. He was light with his hands At 20 I said, hit me again, you're a a dead man
4: man.
5: Yeah, I went to the States Did not understand me, they thought it was strange I said to myself, to hell with them Why should I have to change? be proud of your hometown Be proud of who you are proud of mistakes, the things your face the stains, your reign, the remain to you is no disgrace I have to stand up and fight and say Good God almighty, I'm proud of myself right now Good God, be proud Be proud of your hometown, yeah shops all closing down Big sales signs hanging down So Vincent de is the biggest business in town we go to a side streets, Ferry Street, Brighton Street Take it romantically, like the 1930s. F. Scottish Sherald with a dirty mind, and a flapper girl with a hat over one eye. But still, it's just strange to see all the lens closed up by big black kids. But remember, these are the days of the new neighborhood watch face. You're proud of your hometown, you're proud of who you are, you're proud of your mistakes. The case with life, your face, the stains, your brain, to remain. To you is no disgrace. To have to start of fight and say. Good God Almighty! Be proud of yourself we right now. Good God, be proud. Be proud of your hometown. Yeah, be proud of, be proud be proud be proud be proud be proud be be proud, be proud, be proud, be proud, be proud, be proud, be proud.
0: Oh, I hope that's... Oh, I hope they yeah. are a perfect. Cool. I, I have a on the album called Football, Football. We're after doing a video for it, actually. And Dundalk FC actually gave us the run of the place. Now, it's all it's all about my dislike of football. But... <laughs> Stanley, yeah. I'm in the stadium and, we're, 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 and we're, we're going on about football. It's about my dislike of football. But I'm fortunately saying, you know, it's all part of this town as well. So you can have a football. As long as you're not trying to ram it down my throat, you can have it. I appreciate that it's it's doing good for you, but I'm not into it. Yeah, you know what I mean, and it can, you can still sort of be uplifting and not not too negative either.
1: Right? Yeah, another another great song on the on the album is Bend, actually. So, and that's that seems to be a theme. To you, tell people that that they have to stand up for themselves, that they have to like just you know kind of don't let stuff get you down, keep on keep on going.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty important. It, 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 every 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 album, the, the albums that sort of really work, or the albums that I'm really trying to uplift, and the, the albums that I'm, I'm I'm not so much doing that, are the albums that sort of fall, and um, and you you can you can see those albums for what they, they just isn't. The ones that haven't got too much of an uplifting message in the songs, are the ones are the albums that I'm, I'm not mad into.
1: Yeah, and a copper do you like? Do you miss playing live music now? Because you're you you, oh, yeah. able, you you haven't been able to tour with this album at all, have you?
0: No, I haven't. I've done a couple of online things, and uh, the people have been great. Like the, I, I got a good few LP, LP sold, and um, I sort of pushed it that way, and they I, I, I play the online thing. But I do miss playing live. It'll come back. It's, uh, there's a there's a few people actually in playing gigs now in a couple of weeks. Um mainly in Cork. I didn't see too much going on around Dublin though. There's a couple of there's a couple of bands playing the keynote. There's Junior Brother who were like, the Mary Wallapers who were like, they're playing the the keynote in Cork.
1: You've been like you've been self-releasing all your albums since you pretty much started, haven't you? Yeah. So yeah. how how do you how do you navigate that these times when everybody's just streaming music? Do you do you release? Did you release your new album on Spotify, for instance, or is it just on Bandcamp? Or? No,
0: I didn't. I, I deliberately didn't. I, I the, the, all the other ones are on Spotify. Um, I, I was getting a bit pissed off with Spotify. I, I let the other ones go on Spotify because they have been on already. I just thought it, it's just Spotify pisses me off. I, I I think it's there's something very lazy about Spotify. I think it's just there, and I, I, I'm an album man. I like I like people to listen to the album and, and get stuck into it. So that's so I, le- I left uh, the new album out of the equation and just said this time anyway, just leave Spotify out of it.
1: I think that's a good idea. The actually, uh, the, the vinyl version of the, of the new album looks really interesting. The artwork is great, isn't it? You should buy it. I will <laughs>
0: go the tower there, just have leaving a few years, yeah.
1: Um,
0: yeah, the, the, on vinyl, it's uh, it's great, the, the sound is fantastic. It's a double album on vinyl. Yeah, it's it's it sort of really works on, on 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 the on the on the LP because you you, you can really see because the way it's split up between the two the two discs, yeah. it makes more sense. So there's a bit of a breather between every side, and uh, it's 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 not a that long but it's it's just under an hour, you know.
1: Yeah. Are you are you still working as a as a porter in Dundalk Hospital? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So you've been a... so you've been working the whole way through the COVID crisis. Yes. Yes, of course was,
0: we have, yeah. How was that experience? It's stressful enough. It's, it's stressful enough in that you're working from day to day and you're very conscious. Well, I suppose at the start of it, there was a feeling of impending apocalypse because you weren't sure what it was going to be like. You were sort of looking at Italy and seeing, are we going to be like that? And so there was preparations made in the, in the, the, the local hospital for the worst-case scenario, but thankfully, thankfully that hasn't happened. I think uh, a lot of people are very conscious now. I think I've been out today, and, and there's a lot more masks than there was a couple of weeks ago. I, th- I think it's just it's good that people are conscious when you see what's happening everywhere else in the in the world is crazy. Um I think we're doing all right this country though.
1: Yeah.
0: It's just the people coming into it from outside that's the problem. Yeah, and I think that. You know, and and you sort of think of that, and you see, well, these people are coming in because they, they don't want, the people who run the country we don't want to piss them off because they're the captains of industry, and we can't be seen to be annoying them. You know, yep, that's where that's true. It. That's true. And the funny, who's quarantining? What's going on? now? yeah, you know, it's yeah. that's 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 for a country with a, with a with a border.
1: True. And have you been writing a lot of songs during the lockdown period?
0: I have. I have. I've actually another album ready. And it's going to be out next year, um, which is called Life Rafts. Life, Life Rafts for Lachicos.
1: Life Rafts for Lachicos, Great name.
0: <laughs> and that'll be that'll be out in February now. Yeah. But uh, as I say, I'm, I'm pushing this one here at the minute as much as I can to, to get to get the copies. I have been writing songs. Yep. I have. I have a lot of songs about masks, about <laughs> personal space and Aldi's and stuff like that. And uh, ma- what do you call it? Mask. Yeah. Uh, cast systems of masks in, in, in work the, the writing's going on like there's a lot of the one thing about not doing a lot of gigs is that the sort of writing's made up for uh, like I'm I'm doing a lot of playing a lot of writing and, and uh, so um, I'm a I'm hard I'm really, mm. a um, hard artist i got it I'm, I'm honing it in I'm, I'm, what, what's really nice is I really got back to guitar playing because I got into open playing open strings open, open E and open D and uh, I'm, I'm starting to love it and it's really it's it's, it's really exciting me you know it's it's great to have because it's, it's only a bit of wood and a bit of wire, but the possibilities are endless if you if you give a bit of time to it. You know?
1: Yeah, so you've kind of gone back to the folk side of things again and away from the... I have, yeah, a, yeah. Lot, more, a lot more. Like it,
0: it, there's, The weirdness is there still, but it's it's it's, it's almost... Um, what would you call it? It's almost easy in the ear, but it's not, if you know what I mean. Still truth. get the, 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 the true the folk heads going, Jesus Christ. But yeah. like I can't do anything about that. I'm just being myself, you know.
1: That's good. Uh, so I'm going to play like another song for our listeners now, which I think is great. It's called M- McCabe and the Big Machine. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about that?
0: It's about Morris McCabe the, the, and his, probably uh, what, what he had to put up with and uh, being bullied in, a, in the most serious way and still being able to keep his sanity at the end of it. That's really what the song's about. Uh, a hero or modern hero of Ireland, actually it's uh,
5: to, to me, it's
0: he sort of summed up the country
5: colleagues all drunk at the suicide scene could have killed him or somebody told his boss what he was doing he said come back at the end of the day I'll do it this carefully so he didn't say he was the victim of a dirty luck attack stinky or behind his back and he knew somebody was out to get him but always boxed box did he's lying in the bin that's what you're up against That's what you have to put up with When you stand on the toes of the big machine You'll get kicked down like Like a submarine submarine. Allegations from the left and right Words that could destroy a man for life And the pressure piled on Alexandria's fault line Rumors dissolved over time The surface that boss sung a happy song This man's only pointing out what is wrong But beneath all the bluffing, the dragon eyes were scuffling A cute half a mile long waiting to got him That's what you're up against That's what you have to put up with When you stand on the toes of the big machine You'll get kicked down like a submarine Judas met him in a car park Told his cheek with was a grudge the fist But a better force, I got him out of trouble The dialogue, he got it all on tip. Ha, ha ha ha, we got you, we got now, you boys. now boys Ten years later, this man's cleared his name People out there know he was brave But the settlers aren't fighting Cause no one's been indicted Don't let the bosses grind you down McKay Don't let the bosses grind you
1: down, McKib. Don't let the bosses grind you down. Don't let the bosses grind you down. So that was McCabe and the Big Machine. Thanks very much, Jinx, for the chats. And um, get on to Bandcamp and get the album. It's deadly. In April this year, in the middle of a pandemic, Debenhams sacked more than 1,500 staff with no redundancy. They've been on strike since, demanding their basic rights. Lucas Spiro attended a rally held by Debenhams workers outside the Henry Street store and spoke with workers, politicians and trade unionists about the strike and also about the state of labour in Ireland. This is what he found out.
7: My name is Mairead Fulham and I have worked in Debenhams for the last 24 years. I woke up one morning to receive an email and that was to tell us that we, our jobs were gone so we were literally
8: sacked on the spot. We were just ordinary workers under some kind of extraordinary circumstances. Not a shred of that stock is going to leave these shops until
4: Debenhams and the liquidators are forced to give them just Terms on redundancy and proper acknowledgement of the years and decades that these workers have given
9: to that company. When workers' rights are under attack. Stand up, fight back. When workers' rights are under attack. Stand up, fight back. When workers' rights are under attack. Stand up, fight back. When workers' rights are under attack. Stand up. Fight back. When
10: These are some of the sounds and voices from a rally staged outside of the Debenhams department store in Dublin city centre this July. The rally was in support of the former Debenhams workers who have been on strike since they were unceremoniously laid off in April of this year, right in the middle of a deadly pandemic and dramatic economic contraction as of this recording, the Debenhams workers had been on strike for more than 100 straight days. I went to the rally and spoke with some of the workers and their supporters that were there in solidarity. They talked about their experiences on what many believe is the front line of workers' rights in Ireland. The strike has gone through multiple phases, from the initial shock of 1,400 people losing their jobs overnight, to the difficulties of organizing during a pandemic and country in lockdown. 24-hour pickets aimed at stopping Debenhams from removing any stock from the stores. The strike has escalated in militancy and the workers say they've been given a crash course in organizing. Here's Anne Marie, one of those who has emerged as a leader among her fellow workers and union members, speaking to the crowd gathered outside of the Dublin city centre location.
9: We stand here today as a strong workforce of solidarity to stand up for workers' rights across all industries we want legislation brought in to protect employees and their rights. Devons can't walk away without paying staff wages and redundancy. We will keep up this fight. I would like to thank all the people who have given support and continue to support. And just to let everybody know that no stock will be leaving any store until Debenhams starts uh, paying us proper redundancy. <laughs> When workers' rights are under attack, stand up, fight back. When workers' rights are under attack, stand up, fight back. When workers' rights are under attack, stand up, fight back. When workers' rights are under attack,
7: stand up, fight back. So we got no notice whatsoever that our jobs were gone. We have not heard any word from them. They will not pay us air redundancy, which we are entitled to. They're asking you and me and all of us, the taxpayers, to pay the redundancy package to us, even though the company is making millions. Hi, my name is Mairead Fulham, and I have worked in Debenhams for the last 24 years. Uh, my role was a personal s- stylist. We're gathered outside the store today because of the treatment we have received from Debenhams. Uh, I woke up one morning to receive an email and that was to tell us that we, our jobs were gone, so we were literally sacked on the spot. And since then there has been little or any contact with the store, and at this moment we are really angry. And what we're aims now is, we're on strike, 97% of the people of mandate voted for the strike, and we're on a, an official strike strike on all stores.
10: The primary issue for the Debenhams workers is that a fair compensation for their years of service. As it stands right now, they would receive statutory redundancy payouts equal to two weeks of salary per year of service. What the Debenhams workers are looking for is at least four weeks of salary per year of service.
7: We're on strike now, 14 weeks. We started doing 24 hour strikes in the last two weeks because we know they're out to remove the stock and bring them to their UK stores and sell for profit. And the stock is worth, it could be 30 to 50 million they have there in stock. And that could act as a redundancy package for us. Instead, they expect the Irish taxpayer to step up and pay our redundancy pack again without our government intervening and allowing it to happen.
8: They told us we have to go to the government to, to get our, we didn't, our redundancy, we didn't get any holiday bay or any notice or anything. We basically just left, dumped and that's it. We're just ordinary worker under some kind of extraordinary circumstances when there is COVID and there is a lockdown and we couldn't even meet. We had to organise between ourselves.
10: That was Sam, another former employee with 20 years of service. She told me that when they first heard of Debenham's decision to shut down all 11 stores in Ireland, she and her colleagues began discussing in their WhatsApp groups and later on Zoom what they might be able to do in response. The lockdown had made it impossible for them to meet in person during the early days. As the strike has gone on and moved from organizing on WhatsApp groups and Zoom calls and escalated to more militant actions. So too have the reactions from management and Deminams.
7: We have been informed today by there's a security company going to break our picket line. They're sending in the heavies on all these women. 90% of the people on this Strike action are women and they're getting the big heavies down. So, if you're involved with any of these big heavies in this well known security company, please tell them do not pass this picket. It is an official picket. 90% of the workers, 97% of our workers, voted for an official
8: picket and it's official. Thank you. They have help from so many different people, security working for them, they're helping them, and we're trying to call on anybody to have the decency in themselves and uh, support the workers.
10: Have there been any uh, victories in terms of that strategy, stopping trucks from removing uh, stock, uh, either coming in or, or coming out?
8: We had, thank God for that, we had successful one time here in Henry Street, and in Terely and in Cork when the drivers refuse to pass the picket. So thank God there is a decent people out there. And we're only looking for our right. So that's the help they do. Do the right thing. We're not asking anybody to break the law or do anything against their will. We're just asking for the support, the decent thing they should do. There is a picket on the stores 24-7 and all they have to do, not to boss the bigot.
10: The Debenhams workers here in Dublin realise that this is a situation that has happened in Ireland before, the instances of the Cleary's workers, and it's also one that not only affects those of us here in Dublin, but across the country and across borders.
11: So in the north, we've been engaging in battles against opportunistic layoffs uh, with companies like Hastings Hotels, who have about, uh, I it's 10, 10 hotels across the north of Ireland. They, they, they have been uh, laying off all of their workers, but the United Hospitality branch there has been fighting against that as well. So I think it's important that uh, all trade unionists, all workers, anyone that can gets down and supports the Davenons workers, because, you know, it, it isn't just one, as I said, it's not just one, per, uh, one company. It's going to be every company uh, coming out of this crisis. It's going to be every company in the coming years. And Debenhams are, are, are basically setting the precedent for other companies, saying they can do this and they will do this. But I think the workers that came out stronger than Debenhams and they have said, we won't stand for this, and they're setting the precedent for other workers that are going to be facing this uh, to come out and, and flex their muscles a bit and, sh- and show the companies that whenever workers come out and strike, they can, will, they can win and they will win. So uh, I'm Conor Eddy, um, I'm a people for profit ref in Dublin North West and uh, I guess uh, I've been kind of involved supporting the Debenhams workers and I guess taking great inspiration for what they're doing here and um, probably the most inspirational thing I think the Debenhams workers have done so far was uh, they organised a GoFundMe fundraiser for uh, garment workers in Bangladesh. So uh, these workers, they'd been contracted out to Debenhams, uh, they're making obviously Debenhams garments for probably half nothing um, when Debenhams got into trouble in the UK, and um, they, uh, they they were let go unceremoniously, like the Debenhams workers here. The difference, though, in Bangladesh is that there's no welfare supports, there's no right to redundancy or anything like it. So, Debenhams workers straight away organised a fundraiser, and I think they ended up raising more money for those workers than Debenhams paid those workers in Severance. So, uh, that was really uh, really inspirational stuff.
7: Well, we heard on uh, one of the English on the English news that Debenhams had ordered 10 million pounds sterling worth of stock to come in uh, for the stores and all this stock was made in Bangladesh. And when it arrived, they were offering the company 10% of the value of that stock. And their markup would be so high on that stock that they would have made a complete fortune anyway and then they were offering them 10% so the workers the whole workers they just collapsed under this because they weren't getting any wages whatsoever and uh, one of the ladies from Cork from Debenhams in the Cork store set up a GoFundMe page and between the all our the workers in Debenhams we managed to raise I would say roughly up to Little under maybe 16,000, and that has been sent off to help feed the Bangladesh workers who are left high and dry and without one penny from debnams
8: Our fight is not a political fight, it's a worker fight. We're calling on all the workers to stand together because one lose, everybody will lose. It's not just one, it's not just about Debnam. it's about all workers. I, if we let employers do that, to any workers, they will walk all over all workers. So we need that implemented some kind of law to protect workers. The decent people here, they did so much. We learned throughout this process so much. And it's changed, it changed everybody. We're all here like on a daily basis, we volunteer to cover. And as soon as we see any trucks and as soon as we see any movement, The amount of people that come to help and support, it's amazing. And uh, it's the people that do the support. And uh, sometimes, you know, the Irish people are so generous and so kind. They give as much as they can for our fight, and it's amazing to see. And therefore, I finish on this,
12: that the front line for all workers... And for everyone who's interested in fighting for a society which doesn't operate for the 1%, but operates for the majority, for a social society where the wealth is owned and controlled by the majority and planned in our interests, the front line of that fight is at the picket lines of Debenhams right across the country.
11: The lesson here for other workers that uh, we're facing into a period of mass unemployment. Um, DSRI have already uh, projected up to 600,000 people could be out of the job over the next year. So I think looking at what the Debenhams workers are doing here, actually uh, standing up, fighting back, demanding uh, at least redundancy, but at best, I think, uh, job security and a right to work. Um, that's the, the direction of travel, I think, for the rest of the trade union movement. So. Um, we want these workers to win. That's the that's the that's the main outcome here. But we also, I think, want uh, to see this uh, set an example for what the trade union movement needs to do in the period ahead. And if workers of Ireland don't
7: unite to the likes of this carry on, it's going to go on everywhere throughout Ireland. We are going back in time, back, back, and not forward. I ask the people to unite with us today, and when the workers are under attack. We all have to stand up and fight back. Three cheers for the
4: government's workers.
1: So thanks, Lucas, for that. Uh, If you get a chance, head down to Henry Street and show your solidarity with the workers. This COVID crisis has proved very challenging for people with intellectual disabilities in Ireland and for people and organisations in Ireland trying to support them. Isadora Duran-Stewart and Leheila Jones spoke with Noreen from Inclusion Ireland and Vicky from WALK about the challenges that they face.
13: For this segment, we wanted to investigate how people with intellectual disabilities and their families have been coping with the COVID-19 crisis. We spoke with Vicky from Walk.
12: My current role, um, I'm programme coordinator over a number of employment training Mm programmes. So we run a programme in Talla University Hospital um, and in Leinster House. And the two programmes are focused on building people's employment skills um, and kind of developing career paths for individuals maybe who are out of school, don't have experience are kind of looking to see what's what's out there in terms of jobs and careers so both locations were chosen because they offer like a range of different roles within one setting so people can try multiple different roles um, to kind of gain different types of experience depending on what they're interested in.
13: Going back to January February as COVID started to worsen um, as the report started to get more and more frantic in the news what was going to your head for the services you provide like um yeah. well i
12: suppose particularly for i mean we were running a service where our trainees were working in a hospital which was obviously um, a huge concern uh because we were aware, we were aware that obviously things would change in the hospital very quickly um, if they had to essentially lock down the hospital and yeah. um, so unfortunately it was very very sudden in that it was essentially a phone call from hr you know we're we're cutting all non-essential um, personnel on site, and mm. um, so you know we we basically lab, we're going to have to postpone the program for at the time it was two weeks, which is quite scary because we're four months down the line and we're only now talking about going back in. I suppose the initial was okay. This is for two weeks. You know we need to let everyone know try and explain it to all the individuals because obviously it wasn't part of their plans so again you're trying to make sure people knew at the time Missy, it wasn't everything wasn't shut down either when when they had to leave the hospital so you're trying to explain to the individuals that you know we haven't done anything wrong this isn't a reflection on you guys this is just what we have to do for the next two weeks yeah um, and then very quickly after that I think the following week we were called into our main head office and that was when we had to start um, closing down our day services all across the organisation.
13: It must have been really hard having to tell everyone um, what was happening and also having no kind of end date as well. It's pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah,
12: I mean a lot of people I support work really, really well, but they like, you know, they like structure, they like routine, they like to at least know what's coming down the line and constantly have to say, I really don't know, I'm really sorry, Yeah, uh, was kind of, was, was awful actually to have to do that as a staff yeah. member, you know, when you couldn't reassure someone yeah. and you wouldn't want to give them false hope and giving a fake date if you weren't sure, so yeah.
13: For some people who depended on day services, the response wasn't as engaging. We also spoke to Noreen from Inclusion Ireland, another organisation campaigning to improve the quality of life for people with intellectual disabilities.
6: There was no time to prepare, and that was part of the problem as well. That suddenly, you know, families were left with, you know, the, the bus, no longer the buses were coming to, to uh, take people to their day service. So that was quite a shock, the suddenness at which it all happened. And, and I suppose, following on from that, the, the, um, the, the varied response then from services to continue the support to people uh, and with the uh, accordingly then as we were getting varied reports about how families were struggling and people themselves with intellectual disabilities, we decided to do that survey.
13: Earlier in July, Inclusion Ireland released a report titled COVID-19 and the impact of the closure of day services on people with intellectual disabilities. Over 300 people responded.
6: Interesting in terms of... Uh, the services, how they continued the supports. Um, There was something like 54% of of people who responded said they would little or no uh, service Mm -hmm. or any contact uh, with their service. Um, So it varied a lot. Then other services were really good. There was regular contact. They sent out, they posted out uh, activities that people at home could do. Uh, but again, this goes back to capacity, they had regular Zoom meetings um, and so people who had the access did okay. This is only uh, a tiny, it is only a small picture because the very people who responded are the people who have the capacity, number one, and the people who have access to the internet and have the capacity to, to use it. So. So we find the digital divide has been particularly big for this mm. group of people. So we really need to look at that. I mean, some people who have their um, you know, iPhones um, or regular mobile phones found it easier and who, were, who were already had capacity and confident in using them. At least that was some way of, of keeping in touch. But in the main remote contact does not work for most people with intellectual disability face to face, and of course not just for people. For a lot of us, you can't beat the face to face. It's uh, certainly for people with intellectual disabilities. The social aspect of going to a day service or going to work is huge, um, and that might be the only contact they have outside of their group home or their, you know, uh, family living conditions. So it's a huge part of their life. And when that routine is suddenly taken away, it's it's just very, very difficult. One of the things that we found that uh, people uh the issues that came up were uh, loneliness, anxiety, depression, um, you know, finding the day very long, uh not being able to get out and about. Now, again, for some people as well, it, was, it wasn't it was all bad. They quite enjoyed it, some people. I, I suppose some people, interestingly, said they they enjoyed not being in the routine because often people with disabilities don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. They have to get up. They have to get on that bus at 9 o'clock every morning. Sometimes they might feel like it, but they don't have a choice. And I know some people in, in group homes we would have talked to before said, you know and especially older people who just sometimes feel like a lion can't because they they're not allowed to be in the house on their own or they need to have a support person with them so they always have to stick to this routine. Uh, so for some they actually quite enjoyed it but in the main it's it it and continues to be very very difficult for for a lot of people. I think as time went on boredom inactivity and a big issue, of course, was regression. And that was a big concern for parents that while they were learning new skills, it could be, you know, activities that would, would have been doing in their day centre was baking or, you know, um, literacy skills. It's very difficult for parents or family members to continue that. And so there's a, a real concern of the regression that people have lost those skills. Um, and at the moment, family members are really put to the pin of their collar. They're just, they just can't take any more because they were, they're already, uh, you know, um, struggling anyway um, in terms of services. I mean, if you look at another concern is the access to therapy services like speech and language therapy, like OT in particular, psychology, I mean, the waiting lists are over eight or 9,000, a waiting list yeah according to HSE figures in 2019 so there's serious waiting lists and again that is a huge impact on children's uh, behaviour or children's learning.
13: Usually the prospect of change helps us through difficult times but without clear guidance from the HSE organisations like Inclusion Ireland and the people who use their services have been left in the dark. Uh,
6: You know there's a, a big Cause of anxiety as well is is when they're going to reopen well, number one when they're going to reopen and number two what they what it's going to look like uh, because there's so much uncertainty uh, mm-hmm. about uh, i mean this is one of the things we we asked in our in we asked people in in the survey as well, uh, and you know majority said they want to see them opening as soon as possible, some may open they say when the august holidays are over uh, others are saying the 7th of september uh, others there's concern then that some are saying oh it could be december or next january mm-hmm. so it varies and there's a clear lack of communication from the hse from some of those services so people families are really asking look please let us know give us some indication what is happening here so they can plan their their lives Because of course this is an impact on parents and families because they are restricted from going to work or while they're or working remotely is particularly difficult with children. But when you're children with a disability, it's so much more difficult.
14: Have you found that throughout this period over the past few months, has the guidance been clear or has it been sort of very late to come? You know, what has it been like?
6: Well it's well, I mean, you have the 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 um, reopening of services, the the HSE uh, document, but it it's still, you see, a lot of the services they're run by the HSE. Some are run by charities, so it varies considerably from place to place. So there needs to be much more clearer communication. I suppose it's 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 something new. Everybody's grappling with this. Um, and of course families are also very concerned that they don't want service to reopen until they have all the protocol in place for fear of infection mm-hmm. uh, so while some families want it to open tomorrow others are saying i i don't want it to reopen until uh, you know there are going to be the safety measures um that are there for fear of another you know uh, of a surge or of a, of a cluster forming so um yes yeah, so I think th- there still needs to be a lot more clarity and the need to consult with people with intellectual disabilities. I mean, what do you want in terms of this new era now that we're in?
14: Do you think mm. that so far the need to consult with people who actually have intellectual disabilities, do you think that that has been fulfilled?
6: No, no. I mean, one of, the, one of the, a big issue here is the lack of disabled people's organisations. Um. know we have several organizations including my own uh, but I think we could do an awful lot more to support people to speak up for themselves uh, because that's really it's their voice that is important really important here Um, and so I mean within Inclusion Ireland we have people with intellectual disabilities on the board of Inclusion Ireland uh, but There's a danger, unless the proper supports are put in place, it can be tokenistic. So that is what's key. So I think we need an awful lot more of those kind of supports Uh, and interests so that they have their own organisations. I mean, there is an organisation called the National Platform of Self-Advocates. But unfortunately, the government didn't provide enough funding for them to be supported in the way they should have been. So I think we need to see role models um, and organisations like that that can uh, inspire others to speak up. But there is also, people are saying there's an opportunity here for service to be be different, to be more community-based, to be more person-centred. Because, again, it's a bit like the legislation. We have a very good policy document called New Directions. And this is about people with disabilities being part of the community rather than being separate from and in their own hubs because often these day centers are you know they're not in they're they're sort of on the outskirts of of some towns or cities Uh, they're a place apart and so you know a lot of organizations disability organizations would argue now look here is an opportunity to put new directions into action so that you don't have groups of people of disabled people in the one place they should be part of everyday life Mm
4: -hmm. and
6: so it's an opportunity for the HSE now to put resources and to make this happen in a much more real way rather than having big congregated settings Mm -hmm. so um, so that's that's a really that's one thing that this crisis presents in in terms of opportunities
13: So now we're reopening a little bit,
12: hopefully what, how are things changing again for you? Um, So I suppose at the moment, there isn't a clear roadmap Mm. for disability day services to reopen. So there is a little bit of confusion still there on what that's going to look like. Yeah. Um, And for an organization that used to focus on getting people out into the community, where there are now no community resources available. um, It's quite a challenge. Um, But I suppose, again, it's about getting resourceful um, about what we can and can't offer. So Mm -hmm. it'll probably end up being a a more blended experience for people. So that might be that people are supported some of the time at home, um, doing online things, um, and then some of their time coming to meet us in different locations. Again, we don't have enough funding for all the locations that we would now need to be able to offer supports and social distancing at the same time. And also, we don't have enough locations for all the people because we don't, we don't, um, people don't come to centres and stay in centres and walk. That's not what we're about. Mm. So the idea is that you know you might some people would never come into any type of centre, but now we do need those types of locations to be able to offer something. Mm. So it's it's a bit difficult that way. We like we have quite a few people who were in employment. I was supporting one individual who worked the whole way through the pandemic um, as a frontline worker. Um, so wow. I just think like that was so impressive. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was incredible. Like he he never took a day off uh, during the whole time. So I think those kind of inspiring stories as well. That you know, disability means very little if if you have the right mindset. You know, from speaking to Vicky and
13: Noreen. Their pure determination to provide their services and their resilience in doing so is admirable. But organisations like WALK and Inclusion Ireland are still struggling with lack of funding and guidelines. And although they continue to fight against the odds, greater governmental support is essential. So they can help their users navigate this new normal, which is just that much more difficult for them.
1: And please support Dublin Digital Radio on patreon.com. In the next segment, Tommy Gavin talks to teacher and ASTI Executive Committee member Mark Walsh about the questions of schools reopening, about the Department of Education's response to COVID-19 and about how social and economic inequalities are being exacerbated.
15: After the COVID-19 pandemic forced schools to close in March with education moved online and the Leaving Cert replaced with predicted grading, it was unclear whether schools would reopen at all in September, and if they did, how that could possibly work. But on Monday, the 27th of July, the government announced the new roadmap for the full return to schools. I'm Tommy Gavin, and here to discuss the plan with me is teacher and member of the Executive Committee, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland, uh, Mark Walsh. Mark, thanks for joining us.
16: Yeah, my name is Mark Walsh. I'm a secondary school teacher. I've um, been teaching for about 15, sorry, 16 years at this stage, um, my subjects would be Spanish and more recently uh, computer science, is a new subject that was introduced. Um, I'm also a trade union activist. Um, I'm on the executive uh, of the ASTI, uh, the executive committee of the ASTI for the past five years or so. Um obviously speaking here in a personal capacity. I'm not representing the ASTI, uh, you know, officially, but uh, obviously I'm a, an activist in the ASTI, That's that's me. The plan provides 375
15: million euro to fund the reconfiguration of schools during the crisis. Is the plan as big and comprehensive
16: as it looks? I mean, it it looks big. It looks big and it looks massive when you when you read the headlines. But um, I think it's important to put it in context because if you consider that when the pandemic hit, um, you were talking about private hospitals where the state was paying 115 million per month to private hospitals and that the total bill for City West is likely to be 21 million so even the 115 million to private hospitals that's about you know a third of the amount that uh, schools seem to be getting for the whole year of 375 million you know so in the context of that it doesn't seem like a huge amount and also now obviously all that investment in the health service was necessary and absolutely had to be done that it was a question over whether there was value for money, and the 115 million gone to private hospitals. But if you also consider, like, the education budget from last year, last October was 11 billion, 11.1 $1 billion, and they at that time they had an increase of 360 million, right? That was the bu- that was the increase in the budget for the the whole of 2020 based mm-hmm. on the October 19 budget. And now, so what they're announcing, what they've announced now is 375 million. It's just more or less the same. That's what they announced in the ordinary budget so you know okay it's supplementary to the 360 million from last year but if you do it in percentage terms it's a 3.4 increase in terms of the overall budget so for a pandemic for a pandemic on the scale of COVID-19 you've got a 3.4 in percentage increase in spending by the department of education to deal with the return to school and you know that money is going to be spent over the course of the year. It's not just like for the, the first month, September and so on. So when you put the, the funding in context, it looks fairly um, uh, underwhelming, I suppose right. is the word that i do. And
15: I mean, is there anything positive about it that's been kind of a long time coming?
16: Uh, no, I mean, there's certainly, there hasn't, they're not taking the opportunity to increase class sizes and all that, but I suppose the big issue really is is space and accommodation, if you want me to go on to that, uh, because, you know, like the Department of Education in a previous document back in, back in June, mm-hmm. they were saying things like the physical size of our schools and the number of individual classrooms within them represents the primary constraints to achieve Physical distance of one to two meters between students, and some of the things they talk about, it's basically saying, look, to schools, take your existing capacity, and be creative essentially, and yeah. try to figure out ways that you could use different spaces that maybe you weren't being used be, using before. Now, some schools were already having to use to accommodate students were already having to use you know PE halls, assembly areas, and stuff like that, and that's the kind of thing they're suggesting here, like the like things like you know they give a whole list of suggestions like. Um, remove unnecessary cabinets and furniture to maximise space in the classroom. I can remove a press from my classroom, that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the space is already used for desks. Um, They say things like some older schools have a plinth, you know, where the teacher's desk is raised up. That can, can often take a bit more space, that can be removed, you know.
4: Um,
16: review timetables, you know, to have staggered breaks, but the timetable is a very complex thing, and I don't see how they can implement staggered breaks without seriously altering timetables, which would already be in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, maximize the use of staff resources. Uh, so in other words, try to split classes with the extra few teachers that they're planning to give us. Reduce uh, the use of team teaching. So instead of having two teachers in the one room, you split it into two then you're into the question of where the other room is going to come from. Mm. Uh, For larger class sizes, look at general purpose areas, often called assembly areas, or PE halls. And some of the details in the roadmap show diagrams of how you can use um, the PE hall for, um, you know, fit three classes into a PE hall. And then you kind of say to yourself, okay, well, if the PE hall has been used permanently for classrooms for this year, where are students going to do PE? We don't exactly have the weather for outdoor physical activity and so on. So, you know, I mean, that's, these are the kind of things that they're suggesting. And, and when you think of, as I said already, like we had overhead of classrooms, inadequate science labs, lack of resource rooms, inadequate PE facilities, some schools don't even have a PE hall, you know, <laughs> trying to use it. The estimate there is that 80% of secondary schools are at least 20 five years old which necessitates um, refurbishments and in 2018 575 applications for refurbishments were put on hold. 575 applications for refurbishments were put on hold because the department decided to focus on building new schools which was necessary because of the population increase but you know if those refurbishments weren't done back then presumably there there are already huge constraints in schools i can't see how minor works can be rushed through in four to five weeks to get schools ready for september and i don't know how schools how schools are going to spend that money are you going to be you know breaking down walls between two classrooms to make it bigger are you going to be setting up partitions within classrooms and of course then in the last resort they say oh you can use your local community center or whatever you know, you have schools where there's two schools competing for the use of that community centre, especially in, in more rural areas and so on, even if they have a community centre.
15: The plan does try to make adjustments for the pressures that come with the crisis, the 120 new guidance counselor posts, for example. But it seems that the sources of those pressures are not addressed in the government plans. And You'd have to imagine that cuts to the pandemic unemployment payments while the economy is still effectively on pause and also removing protections for renters that that would have profound effects on households and therefore students
16: yeah I mean I think your point is very well made on in terms of um, well-being because you know the focus on well-being in schools over the past number of years has been particular focus since 2015 you know and it's always about kind of psychological approaches to well-being which we you know we're not necessarily against if they can help but the real issue is never you know just the psychological issues in, you know in schools it's the background issues relating to where where students are socially. So, for example, if they're come from a disadvantaged area, if they're um, come from maybe their parents are unemployed, they're from a de, 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 you know an area where there's a high deprivation index, poverty. The, you know, all of those um, things associated with educational disadvantage. They're they're not caused by the school or they don't arise in the school. They arise in society first, and then they come into the school and we've always made the point if you want to deal with well-being in a serious way you've got to look at making society more equal outside in order that education is more equal inside because you can't just kind of paper over things with psychological approaches that tell you to feel better and all that kind of stuff if you're going home and maybe your parents are it's a broken home or there's addiction issues or whatever there is at home or just even just simply lack of money and you mentioned the cutting of the pandemic unemployment payment especially students being homeless. I mean, the schools can't solve the homeless problem. That's a, that's a, the environment and government issue that they have to, and you can't, a lot of the focus has been on, you know, coping mechanisms for students. And like, I think it's seriously insulting and and, and just an abdication of responsibility to say to students, look, we know you're homeless, we're gonna teach you coping skills and how to cope with the homelessness. Students should never have to be taught coping skills to cope with homelessness they should not be homeless in the first place. And even talking about, you know, giving them coping skills to home, cope with homelessness or, or many other issues that are not their fault, you know, that's an abdication of responsibility and it's a kind of neoliberal thing of pushing the responsibility, moving away from the welfare state and pushing the responsibility on to individuals to, to, to provide their own welfare, basically, and then cope with it using their own mechanisms, things like that. So it's part of the, and and this, uh, the 120 extra guidance, post, I mean they talk about the need for you know support in terms of people's experience of the pandemic and that's true to an extent but a lot of the, the pandemic has just exposed a lot of issues that were already there so it's not directly I mean if the the extra guidance councillors counselors will be welcome in the context of whether there was the pandemic or not they were needed now, they're kind of almost boasting in the documents that uh, the 120 guidance posts would bring the level of guidance counsellors back up to what it was pre-crisis, presumably pre, pre-2008. pre But, I mean, it's not much, like if you think of the, the number of students in the school population has increased hugely since then and that we predict, uh, they, they estimate, not just we, but the Department of Education estimates that there's about 30,000 extra students gonna come into the system between now and 2024. You know, and then you've had the cuts to CAMS, the child and uh, uh, Adolescent mental—I think it's the child and adolescent mental health service—there's been massive cuts there. You've had you've had uh, psycholo- psychologists and psychiatrists resigning in different parts of the country because there's no no out-of-hours uh, care and so on. So, like, you know, there's uh, you know, again, the 120 posts sound good, and we'd obviously welcome and so on, but there's a much bigger. There's a much bigger issue there, and 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 I almost boasting that they're back to what they were pre-crisis. There's no boast because like why were you down in the first place? In any economic crisis or pandemic or any of those type of crises, you shouldn't be cutting guidance councils. I mean, it's the one thing you shouldn't cut.
15: I'm thinking of when schools did have to close in March and move the rest of that school year online. A report from the ESRI found that disadvantaged students, particularly in schools that participate in the Delivering Equality and Opportunity in Schools or DESH program that they were severely impacted in their ability to participate in learning, mainly for lack of access to broadband and computers.
16: Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what happened. And I mean, even the Department of Education came out with this plan to have um, additional funding made available for students, but it arrived way too late and it was inadequate. And by the time the funding actually reached schools, I mean, the school year was nearly over. Now, some schools had their own laptops that they were able to temporarily loan out to students. And that enabled them to be able to use the laptop as opposed to the phone and that kind of thing. But you're right about the disengagement in Deaf schools in particular. I mean, I work in a desk school myself and, yeah, certainly you saw a lot of disengagement. You know, some the exam classes tended to be more engaged, but a lot of the others kind of drifted off. And it was very hard in school, you know, year heads and teachers had to make phone calls to students and so on to try and, keep them engaged but it's very difficult uh, you know i mean there should in my to my mind there should be some national program of say roll out of chromebooks or something where in preparation for another potential lockdown because you know what if there is another lockdown we'll be back to the same problems and schools won't have uh, you know there's no funding in this for extra it grants or anything like that an ongoing it grant at the moment that is being rolled out but again it schools are at different stages of the of development in their IT um, capacity, ICT capacity. And, you know, sometimes they're choosing between, do we get extra projectors for some of these school rooms? Do we get PCs for the lab? Do we get, they don't necessarily have the money to, to say, we can definitely spend this money on Chromebooks in the case of another lockdown. But that's the kind of thing that should be talked about. But of course, it goes back to the other issue that you mentioned as well, is that, is that, you know, the digital divide arises from, again, a social divide and a socioeconomic divide that, that, that who can afford these these devices that, you know, okay, the Chromebooks are about 200, 300, but like your average laptop, 500, high-end 1,000, 1,500, you know, people just don't have that kind of money to uh, to be spending And if they have two or three kids or whatever, you know, the, you're into that whole thing again. So digital divide is really, it's not like, you know, students from poor backgrounds are, are less able to use ICTs. You know, if you come into the computer room, they're not less able to use the devices when they're made available. It's just that they don't have the financial resources to to, um, to access them in the same way as other, other students, you know?
15: Yeah, and like the, on the social device stuff, I mean, of course, we're talking in the context of a global crisis pandemic, but how have teachers reacted to the issue of having to predict grades for the Leingsert?
16: Yeah, I mean, there was there was some. I mean, there was some sort of um, some of the politicians were kind of talking about school profiling and how this was so. And some teachers online as well, you know, talking about how school profiling was a really negative thing and that, you know, that this was some. And some of the worst suggestions is this was almost new that the teachers were going to be involved in making judgments because people were from, or that the Department of Education was going to be involved in continuing or in discriminating against students uh, from, based on their backgrounds, right? But all that's happening is they're continuing that discrimination that already exists because, you know, if you take... the Statistics are really clear on this, and they've been backed up lately as well. If you look at um, the figures for, say, Dublin 17, Coolock and Darndale, you know, only, only 15% of the students go on to third level from there. If you look at Ballyfermus, Dublin 10, Only 16% of students go on to third level, and so you can, and then you compare it to Dublin Six, where 99% of students go on to third level. And I mean, I always quote those statistics because it's just so clear in terms of how they they show that if you're from a disadvantaged area, your chances of going to college are very slim. And versus, you know, you nearly can't get away with not going to college in in somewhere like Dublin Six. So, you know, these are the kind of these are the existing disadvantages that are already there and of course you've got the when it comes to leaving and at the points race and you've got uh you know Kathleen Lynch has written a lot about this, um Professor Kathleen Lynch from UCD School uh, School of Um Quality Studies, whatever it is. and uh, she's written a lot about uh the um the use of parents can bring their um can use a lot of um Extra, extra financial resources to help students get grinds and take the h and all these kind of other things that only money can buy that give students an advantage within the existing system and uh you know cultural capital and all those other things that that's, that's uh, more middle class and upper class students have so so you know the, the system is very the, the system is totally skewed anyway mm-hmm. and you know with but it's contradictory as well because you know, Ireland has overall a good performance in terms of literacy and numeracy for, and science for, particularly literacy, I think we're the fourth in Europe, in the EU for for literacy, and you can ask how can that exist alongside all these disadvantages, but the way I think Kathleen Lynch explains it is that the school system kind of raises everybody up to a minimum level, but then once you get above that level, you've still got the competition that I just talked about there, so you know, it's it's kind of yeah, great, but you know, it's a very contradictory picture. You know, and then you think of the the high performance of the Irish education system relative to the low investment as well is is another contradiction. You know, and you know there's it's just there's, there's all these contradictions at the same time as uh, but definitely the inequality uh in has been exposed in particular as a result of the COVID crisis.
15: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean. It seems like it's very late in the day to be kind of like coming out with a roadmap given that the schools have to actually kind of implement all these changes in like less than four weeks almost. Um and so like what what's going on in education, you know, why why was this so late?
16: Well my my old personal view is that is that the Department of Education, like you know, everything's about control, you know? So even if you go back to the predicted grades, they raise the specter of predicted grades. And of course, the unions are typically, and the ASCI in particular was was against the idea of predictive grades because we believe in the objectivity, although it's not necessarily fair, but it's objective, of the leave insert. Um, we we wanted that to to go ahead, but uh, and the department raised the specter of predictive grades, which people were totally against. So, by them raising the specter of predictive grades, it pushed people back to insisting on having the leave insert in July. And that was grand. And the department started then going on about, oh, we want teachers to come in in July for at least two weeks. And they kept emphasizing at least two weeks. So you're thinking, well, already two weeks. And then what is it, three weeks? Is it four weeks? And do teachers have to be available to students all the way up to the end of July and into August? And would you be called upon then to do marking and all this kind of stuff? So then they made that seem, that alternative seem just unworkable and, you know, awful, an awful scenario deliberately and then it pushed teachers back to the calculated grades model now obviously the politics had been pushing as well students were pushing for cancellation in the fall then came out and said they should be cancelled and all that but but i think myself personally that the, the plan was always to have predicted grades and that all the department was doing was just kind of keep stringing people along keeping people in the dark flying a few kites and all that kind of stuff so there's all these kind of things that are I think the way I described it is, and also you've got, of course, the teacher recruitment crisis, recruitment and the retention crisis, recruitment crisis in some very key subject areas, French, maths, uh, Irish, home economics, Spanish, physics, not a lot of specialist subjects. And then you've got uh, the retention crisis because, you know, teachers are not staying on if they can get somewhere outside Dublin to work, you know, closer to home. You know, you've got the pay. The pay cuts that have been brought in, that has forced people abroad to Dubai and places like that, they doesn't seem, they don't even seem to be making a big call out to say, you know, like we had Ireland's call for for um, the nurses to come home from Australia, nurses and doctors. Where is the scale of the ambition that says, look, all all you teachers who went away to Dubai because, of, rightly so, in many ways because of the the unequal pay and the cuts to conditions and pension conditions and so on. Uh, look we're going to welcome you back now we're going to we're going to announce equal pay now to as a gesture to encourage everybody to come back all hands on deck all that kind of stuff you know give people permanent contracts where you know a lot of people are put on temporary contracts for a long time give people permanent contracts equal pay restore the pension conditions and let's get everybody back into the system who was previously you know out or you know fled the system because of the Attacks on teachers paying conditions get them back into the system now and let's start let's use the opportunity of the crisis to restore the education system both you know in terms of buildings and and uh, facilities but also in terms of teachers paying conditions and 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 all that i mean there's 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 none of that sort of um grand scale ambition here and i think it's a bit like the the stimulus package that they announced to me and people were saying, look, it's not, you know, okay, it's good and all that, but it's not really on the scale of, and it doesn't recognize the opportunity, the fact that borrowing is relatively cheap from the ECB and so on. You know, the European Investment Bank is a perfect opportunity now to address the infrastructural deficits in the country, but also in particular in education. But all they're really doing is, you know, building just enough schools to, you know, because they have to, just enough schools to accommodate the existing population surge up to twenty twenty four. That's all they're planning to do. And you know, as far as they're concerned, they they don't they don't really believe that classes are overcrowded, because anytime it comes to curricular reform and we say, you know, these kind of changes in method methodologies that you want, they really you really need to have lower class sizes in order to to do those to to engage in those kind of um, you know non-traditional methods group work pair work all that kind of stuff to make and you know students moving around the classroom all that kind of more active learning approaches as they call them in a class of 30 traditional class of 30 you know where everybody cheek by gel it's very difficult to achieve those kind of um methodologies so but they, they, for them that's not an issue it's just they don't believe in a sort of They believe the system has already had enough investment, and all they needed to focus on was getting more quality, as they call it, out of that existing investment. That's really, that's really the department's view. So they, you know, and when they when they're doing well in the piece of statistics as we are, for them that's like the pat on the head from the OECD, and you know, as long as those headlines are good, and you know, the corporations are saying, you know, the multinational corporations are happy with. What they're getting in terms of graduates and stuff like that they'll keep the investment in in education on a usual stream as they have done for for decades and uh, there's no sense of ambition that we can do something different this time you know unfortunately i think I think what will happen will probably become obvious as we go back and the problems will start to arise then, and I suppose it'll end up being sort of an ad hoc approach at that point but uh we'll see we'll see what happens i mean we we'll, we'll obviously be trying to make it work but we can make it work if there's if the, if the resources aren't there so there could be there could be flare-ups during the year in terms of you know schools discovering that actually you know look we just literally can't make this work maybe appeal to the education the round of education for extra money and so on and you know it remains to be seen how many people would be out of absence whether students or teachers and so on all that kind of stuff remains to be seen but we you know we'll, we'll see how we go and, and uh, there's always been such a generally being such a consensus around Irish education that it might just happen relatively smoothly and then the problem is that we get back to school and then the problems will only begin to arise during the course of the year. I think that's probably what will happen. You know? Yeah.
15: All right. Well, thanks a for that. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll we'll keep in touch based on uh, as this
1: develops. That's great. Okay.
15: All right. Thanks for your Good work.
16: Thanks.
1: So thanks to Tommy and Mark for that insightful piece. Let's watch the space and see what happens. The compilation album, Litany of Failures, Volume 3, is being released this autumn. Lehela and Danny Carl had a chat about how Litany of Failures began with Volume 1, about the upcoming compilation, about the zine that goes along with it, and about his hopes for the compilation to reach beyond the local music scene.
14: Released for pre-order on July 2nd, A Litany of Failures Volume 3 is a compilation featuring 22 alternative music artists from across Ireland, including Rising Damp, Problem Patterns, Extra Vision and post Punk Podge. This is a third compilation organised by Paul O'Connor, Stevie Lennox and Danny Carroll since 2016, showcasing music from independent artists. The song you just heard was Year of the Sofa by Junk Drawer, which was featured on Litany of Failures Volume 2. I spoke with Danny about how Litany of Failures began, the sense of community in playing music across Ireland and the Irish music being export ready. Since you announced Litany of Failures Volume 3, what has the response been like from artists and listeners and stuff like that?
17: Yeah, I mean, it it has been really good and that is probably uh, uh, somewhat influenced by i suppose a growing trend in people ordering stuff on bandcamp or certainly a resurgence in that it feels like people have kind of come back to bandcamp in the last few months because of those um sales they've done like waiving their fees and also kind of you know uh, aligning themselves with like black lives matter and different different things like that i don't know um we we do, we got a really good response on on bandcamp to it mm-hmm. which was it was nice to know that people were supporting it like we I suppose we have about 90 people have pre-ordered it and um, by our standards that's a lot yeah it definitely it uh, definitely was a, a a great response from people obviously we want to kind of do more to promote it as well like that isn't it isn't as if well there's 90 pre-orders job done or whatever like um, we'd like to still kind of get the word out because ultimately like it's about kind of having a a bit of strength in numbers for all the different bands that are involved and kind of giving a bit of a snapshot of where Irish music is at or where our taste in Irish music is at. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it'd be great to kind of get some more attention for it beyond Ireland as well.
14: Yeah, I noticed on the back of the sleeve you had the artwork, really nice artwork, by the way, but there's a big stamp, export ready on the back, kind of like tongue in cheek, little phrase there I noticed so well, what's the whole motivation behind
17: that? That's all in the eye of the, you know, eye of the beholder, whether it's, um, whether, it, whether my tongue is in my cheek, who can say? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's just one of those funny little phrases that gets used by people in the Irish music industry. And I thought it, uh, it might be nice for, for us to adopt that phrase as well and, and really emphasize how export-ready we are as a as a litany of failures and just to take a bit of ownership of that phrase because um you know when when people are using that phrase and and you're thinking about music in terms of like livestock um (laughs) it seems pretty farcical um Mm. so we thought it might be might be nice to to just adopt that phrase for our own interpretation
14: talking about Irish music or as you said maybe you guys taste in Irish music <laughs> sure yeah. to me Irish music is kind of thriving and yet at the same time obviously it's harder than ever to make a career out of music mm-hmm. um, but that being said like what do you think is the value of a compilation like this of having artists like across all different genres all across ireland like on this one compilation
17: um i i suppose it it, um as i said it it just um creates a bit of a sense of community like we're, we're kind of geographically divided and that's the case with even the three of us organizing it like the last time we were all in the same room was like two years ago which is funny to think like we've organized everything over emails and video calls like I can't um I think it would have been 2018 it was the last time that the three of us who organized it were together and nevertheless like we have a sense of like friendship and a sense of community and 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 like uh we know like if we you know I mean if if uh, if my band were to goes to Belfast or Stevie's band goes to Dublin or or Paul or you know either of us go to Limerick or, or whatever like we're going to be there to help each other and go to the gig and and support each other and, you know, I would say the same of a, a lot of the different bands that are on a litany of failures. It's it's that idea that despite being divided by uh, distance, you do have um, some shared ideals and, and an approach to music and, you know, it's not really concerned with its um, commercial appeal or or its kind of trend of the month appeal it's 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 just a case that this is um interesting music that people are making throughout the country and it's worth hearing and it it, it just um it becomes a nice uh document of a moment in time the first litany of failures i suppose we're on to the third one now which is 22 tracks so the first one had four tracks the second one had 18 and now we've got 22 which is it's just getting more <laughs> bloated each time we do it the initial thing was like um shrug life is my band and, and that snake which is paul o'connor's band you know talking about we'd we done a bunch of gigs together and when we started out and then we were talking about oh do you want to do a split thing split single or whatever and and i thought it might, would be more interesting and beneficial to do like a a split ep and kind of get some other bands involved from other places Uh, specifically O'Bolin from Galway and Jump Drawer from Belfast. And then that way we could play in each other's respective towns and know that there would be a little bit of an audience there or a little bit of a buzz about doing it. If you're just a DIY band, you need to get to know other bands from other towns because it's the only way you're going to be able to justify playing music beyond your mates down, you know, local venues. Mm -hmm that gets pretty tiring after a while as well. Like there's a real freedom in playing somewhere, you know, even if it's just Belfast or even if it's just Limerick or Galway or Cork or whatever, just playing somewhere where people only know you based on this one experience and on this music that you're playing to them. It's Mm -hmm. really liberating, I found.
14: So for volume three, what is different This time, as far as I know, unless I'm mistaken, that there's a zine this time. Was there a zine for volume two?
17: No, there was no zine for volume two. No. Um, So So what can we
14: expect from this elusive zine?
17: The elusive zine um, is being put together by an architect who lives in Belgium called Bevan Delaney. Um, She also puts together a zine in Dublin called this is not where i belong and uh, yeah then it just seemed like a nice idea to kind of again give give the bands involved more of a sense of ownership and input on on the release and yeah the scene is just something a little bit different and and another kind of showcase of the bands involved and, and like their creativity and i'm i'm a sucker for like wanting to read the lyrics when i get a record and um, just nice to have like an accompanying booklet, and people can either write an essay, or they could just give us the lyrics, or they could put in an illustration. So it's kind of cool seeing all the different ways people approached it and kind of took that invitation to contribute.
14: Is there anything in the zine or any particular track that you can't wait to be for the world to see? Is there anything in uh, particular that you think is pretty
17: cool? I suppose uh, from the scene, I'd say my favorite thing is there's, there's an essay by uh, Ross Hamer who uh, plays and in, in, has played in, in a good few bands around Dublin over the years. Um, his track is a collaboration with Dara Keeley of girl bands. Uh, they kind of have this little strange side project called 50 years of hair. And they've contributed a track called drink all the paint. And, uh, he wrote an essay just about being, an, I suppose, a DIY musician and, yeah, how you kind of measure success and failure as well because like, I think failure is such a big part of, you know, the the joyful slog of being a musician. Like, it's um, if there's no one in your corner, if you're doing it all for yourself, then you can feel like you're failing. And uh, he wrote a, a really good essay on it. Uh, so I'm excited for people to read that. And in terms of tracks, like, uh, you know, I guess there's bias here, but the Junk Drawer track is a real bop. <laughs> and like uh, myself and Paul um, were quite insistent that it be the opening track and, and mm-hmm. Lennox, who's in Junk Drawer, and one of the organisers was quite reluctant to do that because it would seem a bit like egotistical or narcissistic for him to be or helping organise this compilation and having the opening track on it, but we, I'm sure uh, the
14: song will speak for itself when I we think, all so, get
17: to yeah. hear it Yeah, I think the song, that, that is um, that's one of my favourites anyway, um, it's really really addictive and uh, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of other surprises
14: A Litany New Failures Volume 3 will be released this autumn and if you would like to get your hands on it you can find a handful of vinyl LPs still available to order
4: on bank Revolution! Revolution! Revolution!
1: that was Nervous Date. Thanks to Dublin Digital Radio and to all of our guests. The sound on Nervous Date was mixed by Jane Deasy. The team for this show were Isadora Duran-Stewart, Lahaila Jones, Lucas Spiro, Tommy Gavin, Katrina Devery, Martin Lean, Dara Dagan-Gregory, James Began, Patrick McClusker and Sean Finnan.